Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. We are currently living through a time of radical shifts in technology, ethics, secular ideologies, and religion. Our culture is increasingly shallow and lonely. Yet, rather than offering an alternative, the Big C Church often remains silent or compromised. In a time of compromise and disillusionment, God is calling his people to a movement of beautiful resistance. We invite you to join us as we walk through the final chapter of the Book of Romans and experience a renewed vision for who the church can be, replacing compromise with conviction. If you would like to visit and attend in person, we would love to have you. Go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. At least once a month, we include in our liturgy a moment of prayer called the prayers of the people. And this is an opportunity for us as a congregation from our seats to just lift our hearts to the Lord and pray about something going on in our world and give our hearts to that. As you know, it's been about one year now since the words coronavirus and COVID-19 began to be a part of our daily conversations. And so thought it, we, we thought it would be appropriate today to mark that and to just take a few minutes and pray. And during the next few minutes, we're gonna watch a video, but I would encourage you, as even you watch this video, to be dialoguing with God about what the last year's been like for you. Part of that is lament. I mean, we think globally, half a million lives lost. Devastating grief. Not to mention the individual losses that each of us have experienced just from the ways we've had to live the last year. Another thing that you could talk to God about during this time is to give thanks for the way he's helped us to endure and the way he's provided people, especially frontline workers and essential workers, law enforcement, just to be able to help us uh, walk through this during the last year. A time of lament, a time of giving thanks, and a time perhaps of wisdom Asking the Lord, what can I learn from this and what adjustments can I make moving forward as I think about this last year? So we're going to enlist a little bit of help. Some of you might remember a, a video series by John Krasinski called Some Good News. We want to just watch that and then I'll come back up and close the time with a few verses from Psalm 31. So let us pray. Good evening, everybody, even though it is very clearly the afternoon, and welcome to SGN. John, what is SGN? You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we're going to walk it out. We gon' walk it out and move on days. And I rise 
negative, positive, discharge to out. This night too shall pass, and when it does, this 2020 class won't just navigate a new normal. Together, we'll build a better one. Congratulations, you have officially graduated. The silence is a quiet, and it feels like it's getting hard to breathe. And I know you If you can't go to Hamilton, we're bringing Hamilton to you. But I promise we would take the world to its feet. Move, I won't take. Bring all of you together. An earth in crisis is still an earth worth returning to. Because if we are in service of our dreams versus our dreams being in service to us, it becomes something greater and it allows us to be game and it allows us to get over our fear and to go forward no matter what obstacles are thrown in our path. I believe that failure is an opportunity to move yourself in a different direction. I'm John Krasinski, no longer needing to remind you that no matter how hard things get, there is always good in the world. Thank you all for making this show so very special. We will see you again. Good night. Good evening, everybody. These words from Psalm 31. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge.
a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Praise be to the Lord, for he showed me the wonders of his love. When I was in the city under siege, in my alarm I said, I am cut off from your sight. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love the Lord, all his faithful people. The Lord preserves those true to him. And be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. God's people say together, Amen. Amen. For those of you at home, we're especially glad you're joining us. There's maybe a hundred people here in the room, and together we are looking forward to this time of worship. We want you to know that the high point of our worship today will be communion, which will follow the message. And so at home, we would encourage you even now to have elements ready that you can use to take communion when we get there. The last few months, I've been chasing good health. And one of the things that I've experienced is the gifts of slivers of God's presence in unexpected places. A couple of weeks ago, I was getting a CT scan. And those of you that have had one, you know you're just kind of lying there in all your glory and IV in the arm, arms up, and that tracer fluid shoots in and that warm, hot flash goes through your, your torso. Just getting ready to go in the tube, or so I thought, when the radiologist <laughs> decides to give me a CT scan of her mind, she is really, really viscerally upset. She's about seven patients behind. She has missed her lunch break again. She's the only one scheduled, never any help, and she lets loose. Just describes it to me in rich detail, with some very well-placed and artful swear words. All of this about a foot from my head. She finishes pushing some buttons on the IV stand, and then she asks, well, what do you do? <laughs> I say, I'm a pastor in Littleton. And I've learned over the years that That'll either get one of two responses. It's either a conversation stopper or a conversation shaker. She's a shaker. Immediately, she takes the conversation to saying things like, I take care of my elderly parents. I try to treat every one of my patients as family. I adopt stray cats. And I talk to God now and then. And then she says, I think I'm okay with God. Don't you? I've got nothing to lose here. <laughs> so I say, not really. Being okay with God does not depend on what you do. It depends 
on what he's done in the giving of his son to forgive our sins and to promise us eternal life now has nothing to do with what you do. And she says, I never heard it put that way. I'm going to have to think about that. And I say, don't take my word for it. On your phone, you can find the Gospel of John. It's like the fourth book in the New Testament. Pull it up and read about who Jesus is for yourself and see what he's done. If you ever get a lunch break again. (laughs) The next morning, I'm at St. Joe's Hospital. I'm in the COVID wing because my COVID test has not come back yet. It's my 59th birthday. I wake up before the sun rises, and I go and sit by the window and just watch it come up. I say to the Father, Lord, you have my full attention. I've never heard the audible voice of God, but I am telling you that a fully formed sentence entered my mind that I didn't form. And it said, I don't need you to be a good pastor. Follow me. I knew exactly what the Father meant. Because those messages in July about, or January last month about our new mission statement, I slaved over those. 30, 40 hours into those, each one. Which means I didn't remember the Sabbath. I didn't read my Bible, and I didn't do my daily prayers. Follow me. But an hour later, another slice, if that earlier moment was a splinter of God's presence, (laughs) another slice of his presence. My nurse for the day walks in. He's a young man named Jordan. He grew up in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, about three towns over from where my parents live. And he's a huge Penn State fan. We compare our Pennsylvania journeys. He asked me what I do. I say, I'm a pastor in Littleton. He says, what's your church like? And I unveiled the new mission statement to him, (laughs) that we are people empowered by the presence of God, and I explained the presence of God, how God actually lives in us and sends us out on mission throughout the world so that we can proclaim and announce that Jesus is so good and beautiful and that we can demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy. And he listened to me very politely. And then he said, no, but what's it like to attend your church? And I realized that he was asking about the experience of being in this room and being part of our family. And I fumbled. I hemmed and hawed and I said something about, you know, at our church it's okay to belong before you believe. Because Jesus, you know, the people who seemed to really be drawn to him and comfortable around him were the broken and the failures and the sinners, and we hope that that's something of what the experience is like walking in here, that you can experience grace. 
Now, after having studied our passage for this moment, I think what I would have done and told Jordan would have come from these words in Romans chapter 12, our text for the morning. Please follow along as I read. Jordan, what's it like to attend our church? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. What's it like to attend our church? In three words, love. Life and hospitality. Let's talk about those and work them in to our congregation this morning. Love. It begins with God. That word love in verse 9 is the word agape. It's the divine love. It's that love that moves for the benefit of the other, no matter how the other responds, no matter what or if any um, reward comes back. It's just a self-giving, self-emptying love demonstrated in how the Father has given us His Son to do what's best for us, to save us. This idea of love in any congregation begins with God and this vertical love that we have received. God is love, John writes twice in 1 John chapter 4. That means that God's essence of being is love. It means that every action of his is motivated by love, even his jealousy and his justice. And it means that every aspect of his being is an expression of love. His holiness, his goodness, his mercy and grace, all an expression of love. God is love. And we need to understand something very important. That God, the essence of his being, being love, has been perfectly happy and fully complete before he made us. He lived in a family experience of love. And he did not need you or me to complete his love. He just chose to set his love upon us and share his gladness. For his glory, he was perfectly happy, but he decided to invite us in to that happiness. And here's what's even more remarkable about God's love, the agape love. He did it when we were not even interested in him. When the last thing we wanted to do was to be in his presence. Romans 5.8 demonstrates or stands with us in his love while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. So love in a congregation begins vertically with the love of the Father demonstrated in His Son and poured into our hearts by His Spirit. That love comes in. But the question is, what's it look like when it comes out? The horizontal love. That's verse 10. 
Romans 12. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. When it comes horizontal to others, it first looks like this expression, be devoted to one another in love. It's an interesting Greek word about philia, which is the brotherly love or friendship love, and storge, which is this family affection. What Paul is saying that when it comes out, it's the kind of friendship that becomes family. That the church experience should be one of family affection. Now, no one has articulated this better in recent years than C.S. Lewis. In his book, The Four Loves, he talks about this idea of storge being this family love, and he calls out two unique features of it that are important. The first is, he says that this kind of family love is non-discriminatory. And what he means by that, think about it with me, you don't get to choose your parents, and you don't get to choose your siblings. What's that old saying about family? They're friends you never would have chose to go through life with. <laughs> it's a non-selective, non-discriminatory love. You are just given these folks, and they're your family, and the bond of family produces the love. That's just incredible, right? To think about. It's, it's the love that's produced by the bond. We belong to God, but we also realize that when he calls us to himself, he's calling us as well to a family. And we immediately, when we become a Christian, take on brothers and sisters. And those relationships of spiritual siblings, think about it, are the only ones that will last into eternity. That's just incredible to dwell upon. And it's not only that, C.S. Lewis goes on to say, not only is it non-discriminatory, it's also remarkably bonding. He talks about how when you are thrown into a family, even though you have squabbles, even though you have you know, issues of family, and some of us come from good families, some of us come from hard families, but the point is, it's always the bond, and the bond turns our hearts to love. Have you ever experienced that? For instance, have you ever like traveled around the world and you just come in contact with another believer, another child of God, your spiritual sibling, and it's amazing the bond that's kind of already there when you first meet them. Several, well, 34 years ago, Jan and I uh, took uh, a couple of three teens to Brazil for a six-month mission trip three months after we were married. That's a whole nother story. But one experience we had while we were there was on a Sunday after service, the missionary with whom we were staying thought it'd be a great idea for Jan and I and one of the kids to just have dinner with this Brazilian family from the church. They knew about six words of English and we knew about six words of Portuguese. So we're all sitting in their living room and, you know, it's that awkward silence when we've tried all the things we know what to say. We're just sitting there looking at each other. When all of a sudden, the husband and the father jumps up and he walks down the hall. And from where I was seated, I could see that he walked down the hall and into the bathroom. And I could see him. He didn't close the door. He changed the roll of toilet paper. And then he walks back out and the stair fest continued. Later, I asked the missionary, what was that about, changing the roll of toilet paper? He said, oh, in Brazil, when you want to honor your guests, 
You give them the good toilet paper. The bond, the family affection, complete strangers, spiritual siblings. It's a remarkable, remarkable experience. And then Paul goes on, he says, it's not only this family love that should be the experience of the church, but it goes further to say, honor one another above yourselves. And this idea of honor is to place extreme value on something. And you purchase it and bring it into your life. It's to make room for the other in your life. And that's one of the characteristics of this love that should be featured in a congregation, making room for the other. Let me walk us through a couple of arenas that we see this play out every week. Several years ago, I was just coming into the room to to preach. I was running a little late, but walked in. And as soon as I walked in, an older widow in our church was walking out. And I could see that she was crying. So I knew I had a few minutes yet. I, I walked out with her. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, I had to run out here and turn my hearing aids off. It's so loud. And then she says, and we never sing any of the hymns anymore that help my heart get home. And my first thought was, wow, that was so eloquent. I've never heard it put quite that way. But then my heart was breaking with her. But while we were there and she was pouring this out, she suddenly stopped, looked me right in the eye and said, but don't change anything because I still want my kids and my grandkids to come here. Making room for the other intergenerationally. That's one of our values at Waterstone, to be an intergenerational church. We have it in our vision statement this way. I know, Tara, I skipped about six slides on you. Could you go back to that intergenerational slide? It's about that we're going to be a church of cradle to grave and equipped for ministry. That's okay. I pretty much said it. We are committed to be an intergenerational church with mindful formation and fellowship from cradle to grave such that the generations are anchored to Jesus as a result of being cared for and equipped for ministry. That's a value. And so we see it on the one end of some of us who are older saying, this is not my worship, but yet I want to make room. And, you know, we also see it on the other end. I know in last night, most of our uh, 20s, 30s group and our younger singles come on Saturday nights. And I looked them in the eye and I said, look, I know for you, you also live this out. Because you would probably, if you hadn't found community here, you'd go to a church with much louder worship and less tame. And you'd go to a church where they don't just dabble in liturgy, but they do deep liturgy. I mean, you do not come here to get what you get on the weekend. You come here because you find community. And I know that every week you walk into this room, you empty yourself of your preferences in order to serve the other generations. And so we make room. Another area where we see this is the wall between married persons and single persons. And at Waterstone, we've been working over the last years to tear down that wall and to not keep single persons and married persons separated, but to bring them together in spiritual sibling community. Many of our small groups now are a combination of singles and marrieds. We no longer have just 
unique single ministry or unique married ministry. We want to honor the love of all spiritual siblings together. But yet, I know that for those of you who are single, young and old, to walk into this room and sit down, usually by yourself, is the loneliest, most painful experience of your week. Can we imagine better as a congregation? For years, I followed the writings of Wesley Hill, who's a New Testament scholar teaching at a Pittsburgh seminary. He's an amazing writer, an amazing scholar. He's also gay, and, and celibate is his called to be a celibate Christian. Here's what he writes, and he's done a lot of writing about friendship and what it should look like in a church. He writes, I imagine a future in the church when the call to chastity would no longer sound like a dreary sentence to lifelong loneliness for a gay Christian like me. I imagine Christian communities in which friendships are celebrated and honored, where it's normal for families to live near or with single people, where it's expected that celibate gay people would form significant attachments to other single people, families, and pastors, where it's standard practice for friends to spend holidays together or share vacations, where it's not out of the ordinary for friends to consider staying put, resisting the allure of constant mobility for the sake of their friendships. Imagine a church where genuine love isn't located exclusively or even primarily in marriage, but where marriage and friendship and other bonds of affection are all seen as different forms of the same love we are all called to pursue. Then we can witness the kingdom in which the ties between spiritual siblings are the strongest ties of all. Marriage, Jesus tells us, will be entirely transformed in the future, barely recognizable to those who know it in its present form. Bonds of biology, likewise, are relativized in Jesus' world. Mark 3 is where Jesus' own family thinks he's crazy and out of his mind, and they come to pull him back in, and Jesus says, no, I'm not going with you. Whoever does the will of the Father, those are my brothers and my sisters. But the love that unites Christians to each other across marital, racial, and familiar lines are loves that will last. More than that, they are loves that will witness that Christ's love is available to all. So we make room intergenerationally and between married and single people. And lastly, we make room for the races for the nations, for the ethnicities uh, around us and around the world, we make room. We begin to understand that the salvation that we've received is not a private transaction where I get my sins forgiven and I get to go live with God forever. That's where it starts. But as soon as we're in it, we understand, but wow, I've taken on brothers and sisters and not only here from, from around the world and what Revelation three times describes as people from every language and every tribe and every nation and every ethnicity. And that's what it'll be like in the future. And we begin to understand that God wants us also to demonstrate that now. 
And so we begin to make room for other ethnicities and other races in our own personal lives. We want to demonstrate that kingdom. And so we practice three things, and we've been talking about these lately at Waterstone. First thing we practice, we examine our racial habits. Every one of us has racial habits, formed during our childhood perhaps, formed from the particular race and culture that we live in. But each of us has racial habits and thoughts and opinions. And one of the first things that believers do is examine those and say, am I making room for God's picture? You see, God's not colorblind. I hear people say that sometimes. Well, I'm just colorblind. I don't see color. Uh, I see people. That's not the MO of heaven. God's not colorblind. God's color rich. And he calls them all out and celebrates each one. That's what heaven is. And so we're always asking ourselves, what can I do to make more room in my life for the nations? Secondly, the other thing we, we practice is incarnational listening. We know there are people in our church, in our neighborhood, in our culture, people of color who have struggled during this last year and during some of their lives. And so one of our postures is to listen, to walk in their shoes and enter their world. I will never forget, not long after the George Floyd tragedy, I called people of color in our congregation and having a conversation with one particular young father. who And I asked him, I said, how is it at Waterstone? He says, Waterstone's fine. But he says, you don't know what it's like to just be a person of color living in the predominantly white area. He said, and my children and I go for walks, I always make sure that we walk before dark because I know that after dark, I am a threat to some of my neighbor's perceptions. Can you imagine? Can we not walk in the shoes of others? Which leads to the third response. So we examine our racial habits we walk in the shoes of others, and then we lament. We take to God what needs taken to God, our anger, our frustration, our tears, our grief. We do it in behalf of others as well. And we lament and go, God, come down, change this. And then we ask, and what do you want me to do? So we examine our hearts, our racial habits, we listen and walk in other shoes, and then we lament. Why? Because we want to be a congregation of love, family love, which leads to the next word, life. We want to be a congregation of life. We go on to verses 11 and 12. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. There's about six uh, part preaching series and each one of those phrases there, we can unpack that for quite a long time. It's really a picture of a person who's transformed and transforming. Back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, as we offer ourselves to God because he's poured his love into us. Never be lacking in zeal, keeping God at the center. Spiritual fervor, some scholars think it's talking about the Holy Spirit there and could be translated aglow with the Holy Spirit which leads to action and serving the Lord, and we are motivated by hope that nothing here is the last word, so we can be patient 
in affliction and circumstances, we choose to listen to God more than what we think our circumstances are doing to us. And lastly, all of that resolves in prayer. The people who pray the future into the present, the people who make history, prayer. All of that is a picture of a transformed person. But here's the point I want to make. Paul puts this transformed person into a context of a community. And do you know what that means? Listen, it means that even your individual spiritual journey is meant for the family. That Christianity may be personal, and you and God may share many things together, but it's never ultimately private. Your spiritual growth is meant to be a catalyst in the congregation. You know, all of us probably have homes and different layers and level of privacy, right? Things we will do and won't do in terms of privacy. But I can guarantee you this, having been one and having raised two, homes with teenagers arguably have the highest levels of privacy, right? Closed doors, locked doors, leave me alone. You know, still for parents of teenagers, you still have to know because you're liable to know what's going on behind that closed door and where's that money going and where are you? You need to set levels of privacy based on the well-being of the family. And that's also true in the church. We set levels of privacy based on the well-being of the family. We do this in what we call small groups. In small groups, and we like to say at Waterstone, you're not fully connected to Waterstone unless you're in a small group. We're a church of small groups. Why? Because it's there that we practice this idea that our spiritual journeys even belong to one another. And we practice things like accountability. Back in verse 9 when Paul says, you know, cling to what is good, hate what's evil. That's accountability. And it's in a small group with 10, 15 other people that you can lay your life open a little bit and give people a hunting license to look at your heart. And you could say things like, well, why are you dating her? Or why would you consider that job? Or really, you'd uproot your family and move? Tell me more about that. We, we get to some deeper levels of accountability in a small group. And that's necessary not only for our growth, but our journeys to share with the others. And it gets to even things like verse 13, where we start messing with each other's material resources. Verse 13 Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. That leads to the third word. So we're talking about what's it like to attend Waterstone? We hope that it's love, family love. And we hope that it's life, shared life. And we hope that it's hospitality. Now, hospitality needs some definition because I think in America, we often see it as a two to three hour event where you don't come too early and you don't stay too late and you have some good food and a glass of wine and some surface conversation and, ah, hospitality. That's much different than what this culture viewed hospitality. In this culture, it's radical. We would see it as very radical. In, in this culture, hospitality means, oh, can't you stay another night? Oh, you, you need a house, a place to stay? Oh, you need a car? How can I help you go from stranger to family? That's the idea 
of hospitality. We see it in God's people in the First Testament from Genesis on, from Abraham hosting what turned out to be angels, unaware, all the way to Jesus. In your beautiful resistance chapter that you'll discuss in groups this week, it lists the many places in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus did teaching and conversation around food in people's homes. It's amazing. In fact, I would suggest that hospitality was just not a strategy of Jesus for his neighboring. It was the strategy that he used to reach into people's lives. Hospitality. Which leads for a consideration of this quote that's also in the Beautiful Resistance book. It's from Alan Hirsch. I just want you to sit on this with me for a minute. If every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around the table once a week to neighbors, we would eat our way into the kingdom of God. Mm. Can we be that kind of congregation? Love, family love. Life, shared lives. Hospitality, radical hospitality. So what I want to do now, just before we go to the table, is read the text in Romans 12 one more time. And as I read it and you meditate on it, I want you to actually think to yourself, how are we doing as a church? Are we this kind of church? And, of course, the only way you can answer that question is to ask yourself what part you're playing in this family called Waterstone. I'll read it. You ponder it. Are we this kind of church? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now as we come to the table of the Lord. I invite you to, at home, get, get the elements ready here in the room. Go ahead and take the top layer off and get that plastic disc out <laughs> from the top. I have learned over the last few months that if you leave those dissolve on your tongue, they're much easier to chew later. That's your free tip for today. You know, if you think about it, you read scriptures the Bible is the story of failed families, page after page. Cain and Abel, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah, on and on it goes. David and his son Absalom, the failure of human families, the brokenness, the pain. But then the one comes who was prophesied throughout the thousand years. His name is Jesus. He comes and through his blood, he forms a family, a family that will not fail, a family through his blood 
that can forgive us of all the times we've spilled blood and all the times we've failed our sisters and brothers. Through his blood and within his family, his blood calls Jesus, I mean the Father's love and justice to us so that every time we come to God, his hands are extended and the prophets say, our names, our lives engraved on his palm, his hands extended to us because we're family. And this is that moment when we realize we are God's family. He's calling us to himself. He's calling us to one another. So would you take the bread and we'll eat it together. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He said, this bread represents my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood, a new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. <laughs> 